Uh, Kevin, I got to tell you, before we start the show, I thought of you this week. Phil Mickelson wins the PGA at 50 years old. And I said, Martin's got to come back, man. You got to come back, Martin. Hank, did you watch it? Wasn't that an outstanding story? I definitely watched it. I loved every minute of it. And there is no chance of a comeback. <laughs> Hanson, you might come back then, right? You, you, you could do it. You're in better shape than anybody. Actually, I'm considering it, Jim, in my next life. Okay. <laughs> okay. We got lots to talk about, man. Uh, Warren, this is a great show for you because it's all about the mixed doubles that, you know, that wrapped up this week. And uh, boy, if you're, if you're a curling fan, you got to love the last couple of months. So we're going to talk about that and a lot more coming up. Last Rock, eighth end, up by two. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. Just clean. Don't kill it, Don't kill it. Don't kill it. Line's really good. Line's in. Right on the button, guys. Right here, Last guys. stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. As I said at the top of the show, as we get rolling here, uh, it's been all about uh, the mixed doubles. Uh, The world mixed doubles uh, ended this week. Uh, but there's a couple of interesting points that have come out of it, which we have to discuss. There's been a fair amount of buzz this week on our Facebook page about how to bring new teams into the fold that are below the ranking of the top 12 to 15 of the world. Uh, there's been lots of ideas put forward by this, uh, which we want to discuss. And we've got another guest, uh, Phil Drobnik, who is now the head of the uh, U.S. Mixed Doubles uh, program. Let's start with you, Warren. Give us your update, your feel for it. It must, it must be, Warren, before we start, it must be a proud moment for you with all the mixed doubles that happened because this was your baby and I thought about you all week and uh, what a wonderful thing you did for curling because people absolutely love the mixed doubles, Warren. Yeah, it is kind of funny. Every time I, I watch a mixed doubles game, I think back to uh, the thought process and we put that whole thing together uh, a little over 20 years ago and uh, it, it's quite amazing as to where it started and, and where it's going. So, yeah, it feels good to to know that that sport is uh, catching on in the manner of which it is. I think one thing that we determined for sure this past week, there's little question who the number one curler on the planet is at the moment, and that's Bruce Mowat from Scotland. Take a look at what he's done since March. World Men's Silver, Humpney's Cup Champion, Players' Championship Champion, World Mixed Doubles Gold. It doesn't get much better than that, and this guy is really in fire, and it's going to be interesting to see if he can keep this going into next year. What do you think, Kevin? Well, I'd hate to bet against <laughs> Bruce right now. You see all over Twitter, Bruce Almighty. <laughs> you know, he's uh, unbelievable. And But, you know, we got to congratulate, of course, Jennifer Dodds as well, uh, Bruce's partner in the uh, mixed doubles. But let's go through mixed doubles a little bit. We've got, uh, of course, the gold medalist, silver medalist, Kristen uh, Skaslian and uh, Magnus Nedregotten out of Norway, bronze medal, Elmita Devel, and of course, one of the best players in the world, definitely Oscar Erickson. Fourth place, uh, Carrie Anderson, of course, and Brad Guju. 
Now, those are the, the final four. But remember that when it comes to qualifying for the Olympic Games, it's actually the top seven, the top six that made the playoffs. And then there was the one extra playoff game between uh, the Czech Republic and the USA. So Italy, uh, Stefania Constantini and Amos Massner, uh, they became in fifth. Switzerland, Jenny Perret and Martin Rios, they're always uh, a tough mixed doubles team, uh, the Swiss pair. And of course, a huge congratulations uh, for me for the uh, to the Czech Republic. You know, just a huge win for the country and uh, and for their curling program. Zuzana Polova and uh, Thomas Paul winning that game against the U.S. to guarantee them a spot in the Olympic Games in Beijing. So, congratulations all. And I want to also you know send out a, a congrats to the World Curling Federation for getting this the whole thing done. Like yeah, there were so many questions. So many naysayers back in January and early February, right before the bubble's going to start, and the World Curling Federation, they pulled it all off along with, uh, of course, the mixed doubles in Aberdeen. And, of course, Curling Canada uh, stepped in along with the Grand Slam of Curling and made it all happen in the Calgary bubble as well as the volunteers. You know what? It was an amazing thing to uh, to be able to, from the start to the finish, and, of course, I know that everybody had their fingers crossed across the curling world going, okay, please, Leon, let's get it through. Let's get through this. We need all these qualifiers to happen for all this qualifying for the Olympics, because if it wouldn't have happened, how do you decide what nations are going to play in the Olympic games in men's, women's and mixed curling? So, you know, it was really important. I watched quite a lot of the mixed doubles this week. The ice was fantastic. And Tom Brewster, of course, a great curler uh, in Scotland, him and his crew, did a terrific job, and uh, you know what? It was, uh, I think, an all-around success for the last, well, it started February 15th, I think, with the Scotties. So three and a half months of curling between the Calgary bubble and uh, and Scotland, and fantastic. I just want to make sure I, I shout out a big congrats to everyone. Just want to go back to uh, that game between the Czech Republic and the USA for a second. Certainly, I felt bad for Tabitha Peterson and Joe Polo, the American side, who I know those two people and they're great players. But the emotion from that Czech team when they won that game was just absolutely fabulous because I'm assuming that's the first time that Czech Republic will have any kind of a, a team in the Olympics. And so they're going to be in the Olympics for the first time. And the emotion that came from both of those people was phenomenal. I think I should also mention, of course, China is also going to be part of that mixed doubles playoff. So that, that's the eighth, eighth spot, and there's going to be two more spots decided. Uh, all the teams that were playing in Scotland that did not qualify into the eight will be playing off sometime probably in December at a site yet to be determined to determine the two more spots. And, of course, the two U.S. players who, uh, who didn't make it or the U.S. representative will be there as well to try and get them a spot in uh, Beijing. So is that wide open, Warren? Anyone can go to that last qualifier? Uh, from what I understand, just the teams that were in Aberdeen that didn't qualify will be able to play in the uh, in the final playoff. Great job, Kev. What about, uh, can we get a comment about Team Canada, uh, Brad Gushu and Kerry Anderson? What do you take away from their result? I don't think they played at the top of the game. In the Canadian Mixed Doubles uh, Championship, uh, both Brad and Kerry played a higher percentage than they did at the World uh, mixed doubles, but that happens with athletes. You don't always play at the absolute top of your game and, and they weren't quite there this time, but solidified the spot in the Olympics, got into the playoff round and just came up a little bit short, but I don't think so. Other than one, well, one, I guess one important part is that Brad had only played mixed doubles a little bit and Carrie, this was her first time at it. 
So to win Canada and then go on to the Worlds and represent us very well, in my opinion, was was really well done. And one thing that we have to look at, and I know Warren is chomping at the bit to talk about this, and that's mixed doubles in general in Canada. It, um, I kind of think, how can we not have more people playing mixed doubles more often and certainly our kids coming up not just a junior but starting at you know how much fun would it be at 12 years old to play mixed doubles or, or even doubles fantastic we just need to take a serious look at mixed doubles and like why we're ignoring it it, it bewilders me like everybody's wondering why brad and carrie didn't win well carrie just had never really played it before not her fault I think overall in Canada, we have to start paying more attention to mixed doubles as far as, first of all, how do we put these teams together at the top end? And uh, I'm assuming what's happening as well, because there's a few teams that are becoming mixed doubles specialists, along with some of these top teams are combining, as we saw with Brad and Kerry. But I think more effort has to be put into trying to, I believe, shape the teams of mixed doubles players going forward. I think there's need for more mixed doubles competitions, which again are very thin. And I think maybe some of these major events, maybe even the Grand Slams uh, as we move forward can end up having a mixed doubles component at the front end or back end of uh, maybe starting with one slam event. I think there's got to become a mixed doubles junior championship and maybe even men's doubles and a women's doubles. That hasn't been talked about much. And just because it hasn't been part of the whole saga to this point in time, there's no reason why that can't start to happen. Or it can become mixed up doubles. It can be men, woman, two men, two women however you wish it. And the game overall, I think, embraced more in Canada because I also look at it as being a very important thing with curling clubs going forward. I know the complaint is, well, it's only four people rather than eight, but there's ways of working around it. And I think it's, again, one of the things we can use to hook new people into the game because of it's quick, it's high scoring, it's engaging. And those are the things I think it has to be. Warren, you got to be pleased, though, um, with the, the profile that the mixed doubles got over the last several weeks. I mean, if, if if they couldn't get more exposure than than what happened over the the last few weeks, and certainly that's got to help grow the sport. Yeah, the profile has been very good. Uh, this again goes back to the fact that uh, mixed doubles has not been part of the season champions prior to this year, and I doubt if we hadn't had uh, the COVID situation whether it would have been this year. So I really think curling Canada has to figure out a way going forward that it's going to be part of the season champions schedule and be one of the events in there, and, and that's maybe a start of making it a little more prevalent. I think this was probably the first year we even got the kind of world coverage that we did on it in Canada. So I think those aspects all have to be made bigger and better, and, and with it, it will grow. Kev, do you think it will get to a point where if you're going to concentrate on mixed doubles, that's all you'll be able to do? What's up with, say, Olympics? Uh, are you going to be able to curl in both? I think you'll, you'll curl in both. I, I don't think a person would be just one or the other, at least not in the next, you know, 10, 20 years. Now, it may get mixed doubles, you know, way, way bigger. Well, if it does, then I guess people can worry about that. But right now, you know, you've got Bruce Moat, who's who's certainly, you know, <laughs> number number one right now. I can't imagine why Scotland or Great Britain in the Olympic Games wouldn't want him. <laughs> Anytime you can possibly have him throwing, that's a good thing. You have a much better chance of winning a medal. Um, so I, I don't think there's any reason why people wouldn't play both. Um, the four person curling is, is certainly the biggest sport right now, definitely draws the biggest sponsorship. So your top curlers are going to play four person curling. No question, just because of course it, it makes financial sense. Mixed doubles is so much fun and the top players, 
how, how, how could you not play mixed doubles anyways? Just, just for the fun of it. And then of course, at the end of the end of the road, there's an Olympic medal sitting there. So I think the top players will play both. And it's just a battle as to who, who gets to the Olympics in the four person curling first. And then if the countries deem it possible in Canada's case, they don't allow you to play both. Other countries do allow you to play both. It's really up to the country and the rules that they set. But say in Canada's case, you battle it out for four-person curling. The teams that don't make it, you go with your mixed doubles pair, and you go in and you try to win the uh, mixed doubles trials and and go to the Beijing that way. It'll be interesting to see. I'm surprised, Kev, you said it will take so long, 10 to 20 years, to get it uh, up to where Warren would like to see it. Oh, I, I want to see it too, but things don't change really fast when it comes to, to sponsorship and television coverage and, 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 and covering all these various events. And maybe it'll be quicker than that, but you know, uh, the Olympic cycle is every four years. And I just can't be, see it being quicker than a couple of Olympic cycles before uh, the prize money's uh, big enough where people can just do mixed doubles without playing the four-person game. Do you see that, Warren? I think it's got the potential to move forward in that fashion because I think as it gets more ingrained into the fabric of curling in not just Canada but the world, it's going to become more popular because I find it, like you suggest, a very entertaining man with just 10 rocks uh, being thrown. I can't believe in some of those ends how many rocks are in play. And it's all towards the middle. And it's always been my theory for a long, long time is the most entertaining curling is going to be when you play towards the middle, which is why that game was developed the way it has been. And uh, I, I think anytime you get played towards the middle, that's how you score m multiple times, and it's where you're going to probably see the most exciting shots. And so I think as that grows and people become more aware of that, um, it's going to be gaining in popularity, and I, and I think it's going to be right up there with four-person curling, maybe quicker than we, than we might think, because it's gotten a lot of visibility this year that it hadn't uh, had before. So I think that's going to make a difference. Do you think four-man curling, Warren, will look at this and go, maybe we should look at some of these ideas that they're doing uh, because people people like it and they are they keep saying it's a lot more fun to watch. Yes, it's interesting you bring that up because uh, I've thought about that. I've done some playing with things of thinking, hmm, what if we started off uh, each end in four-person curling with two position stones, maybe not the same as mixed doubles, but position rocks, and we threw seven rocks a team per end rather than eight, and uh, you decided who you decide who's only going to throw their one rock, uh, and maybe that can change your end. So, I've thought about that. There's probably some other considerations that could be put in there as well. But you know, maybe going forward, those type of things uh, could become reality. You'll only know any of these things if you start experimenting with them and see how they how they work out and see what it changes. Uh, our guest is going to be Phil Drobnik coming up. Uh, you know, in a, in a few minutes, uh, he is the head of the U.S. Mixed Doubles Program. Uh, and we'll be interested in asking him a bunch of stuff that was just brought up here about what they're doing in the States, uh, you know, how the program works, how, how are they dealing with younger people, getting them involved, uh, and a lot more. So email us, insidecurling at gmail.com. Keep them short, though. Keep them short. There's a chance you'll get on the show. Twitter, at Curling Inside. Facebook, at Inside Curling. And Instagram, at Inside Curling Podcast. Thanks, for everyone, for your emails. There's been a fair amount of buzz this week on our Facebook page about how to bring new teams into the fold that are below the ranking of 12 to the 15th spot in the world. You know, one of the interesting points is the is most of the curlers winning major events and titles are not youngsters. If we take a look at some of the people having success, one of the women's side, Alina Petz, uh, she's 31. Anna Hasselborg is 32. Rachel Holman is 32. Carrie Anderson is 31. 
Nicodine is 35. Brendan Botcher is 29. Kevin Cooey is 46. Holy man. And Brad Gushu is 40. What are some of your thoughts, Kev, about all this? I have some different thoughts on this. I don't think you change the events, the big events as of today, the Grand Slams. You want to keep a tight field because you want the best of the best. And that's not a place to cut your teeth, I don't think. But the World Curling Tour events are. But I think a really important uh, stride that we as a sport needs to make is uh, improving our streaming of curling. I know Sportsnet Now is fantastic, and we just need more and more curling on it. And that can come from the World Curling Tour. And that's just a matter of setting up a screening service to all the various events. And I think that would really help bring notoriety to teams that are playing on the tour, because then you're getting it streamed all over the world. And and all of a sudden, there's going to be household names come from, if you want to call it the Tier 2 group, before they take the step up into Tier 1 and into the Grand Slams and, and uh, World Championships, Olympics, and so on. So I think that's kind of a, probably a really good answer to this question of, of how do we and get these young people more competitive and get them some money in their genes so that they can travel enough and be able to compete. And uh, I think uh, the worldwide uh, curling streaming is a huge answer for it. And uh, there'll be more information on that in the next few weeks. Stay tuned, everybody. Warren, why do you think that uh, almost like it's a, a negative thing that, that these champions are too old? You know, Phil Mickelson, for example, wins this week. I can't think of anything bigger for the game than young kids watching an older person win a championship saying, hey, I could stay at this thing for a long time. Well, except if you look at golf, most of the guys winning these days uh, are pretty young. They're in their early 20s uh, for, for the most part. So I think we, we don't see that in curling. If we if we take a look back through time and if we look at the Briar, Kerry Burtnick was the youngest player to ever win the Briar in 1981. And he was 22 years old. No one has even scared that since then. We can go back even farther Ron Anton played third for Hector Gervais in 1961 and uh, won the Briar, and he was 19 years old. We haven't come anywhere near seeing anybody in that age category for years in that winning circle. Uh, maybe there's ways that uh, the next-gen development that's taking place right now, the U25, U24, those things will all help. But I think without question, there there is a need for an obvious Tier 2 development. And I know there's those amongst our Facebook group that feel strongly that everybody should be lumped into that top level and you just play off and see who come out. Uh, while that might help development, I don't agree that this is the, the most uh, advantageous route for the sport to be taken. And I don't think there really, really is a solid route right now that does exist. Uh, some of our Facebook fans seem to think this should be Sportsnet's responsibility to develop this aspect. But I don't believe it is. Sportsnet has done a great job of showcasing the top players in the game. And uh, they're a private company, and I think they're doing a great job at that. But Curling Canada and WCF in particular, but Curling Canada needs to be the ones that step forward and begin to, I think, better develop the Tier 2 aspect. And not to say that I don't think that Sportsnet might not be part of that if they were approached and, and discussed. But I, I do believe that uh, that whole end of things needs to be tuned up to some degree. I think the other interesting thing that takes place is, uh, in Canada anyway, uh, our manner of how people come up through the game today is to a very large degree by chance. And because of, as well, our provincial territorial guidelines, very hard for a player to, to venture outside the borders of their province going forward under our current structure. 
I think it starts with probably developing a good evaluation system, which I'm not aware of existing, that uh, evaluates player, players at the technical level, at the psychological level, and at the physiological level, probably starting at a very young age, probably around 14, 15, and that probably needs to be updated every couple of years uh, in a camp of some sort. So you begin to build a book on the players so you know who's who. And I think as the players move forward, I think Curling Canada needs to be helping them as well in the development and putting together of teams. Again, I believe without boundaries uh, from a provincial point of view. And I think after a period of time with that approach, you're going to see younger teams developed quicker and uh, built solid, far more solid at a young age versus now you kind of go, have to go through the mill yourself. And I even go back to when I was playing, Kevin probably can say the same thing. When you're coming up through the ranks, you just hope that some good player or good skip might see you and say, hey, I think that guy's a pretty good player because there was no other way of kind of moving through the system. And I think the whole thing has to be more calculated. I think when we talked to uh, Phil Drobnik later today, as far as the United States are concerned, they're doing things slightly differently than Canada is in the, in, from the point of view of, again, moving their, their, their players forward kind of as a group and uh, helping them develop teams. And I think it's paying off for them so far with regard to the type of competency they're, they're developing, particularly with some of the younger teams. Well, if I want to step back into my time, uh, the way you got a good team together is, uh, and it was well known, um, you had to go to the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, go to school there. That's where Jules Ochar was the coach, and he would put teams together. And so I didn't know. So our, our first, uh, our Canadian junior team that we won the Canadians with, Rick Feeney, Throwing third, I had never met him. Dan Petrick, throwing second, never met him. Mike Berger at lead, never met him. But I went to Nate and tried out for the team. And Jules would have more than one team anyway, but to the main team. And uh, he put the team together. Like He put myself and Rick and, and Dan and, and Mike. And Mike was from Burstall, Saskatchewan. It was a very, very small town in southern uh, Saskatchewan. And then Rick Feeney was from Sexsmith, Alberta, way up by Grand Prairie. Dan Petrick from Smoky Lake, and I was from La Heat, Alberta, nowhere near each other. So none of us knew each other at all. And we put the team together, and we won, and, and Dan and I curled together. Jeez, we curled in a couple of Olympics together even after that. We stayed together for years. So to your point, Warren, it does make a lot of sense. And we do need to have a junior curling camp structure, not a lot different than, I guess, what my curling academies are uh, Rob Kreps and myself now have been doing it, I don't even know, 13, 14 years. We've been doing two camps a year. And and really, uh, we, what we do is evaluate the talent. And, you know, Jules is, you know, Jules is old now, so he doesn't worry as much about building teams at Nate like he used to. But I'll tell you who does, and that's Rob Kreps. And he built, the basically built the, the botcher team, who's doing pretty darn good. Carson Sturme team, who are very strong, but younger. The Kelsey Rock team, who are very good. Val Sweeting's team that she used to have, not with Carrie Anderson, but her previous team with uh, with Dana and Rochelle. So that's kind of what's going on in Alberta now. And, and we run these academies, bring all the kids from across Canada, some from the U.S. in. And we do evaluate them, actually, but but not on a national level, because I'm not, I'm not involved with Curling Canada at all. I've never been invited into the fold at all. So we just do this ourselves. And Krepsi and I have been partners in this for now 12, 13, 14 years, and it's terrific. So we just need to do the same kind of thing in a couple of camps across Canada and not 
for that reason, but to get all these kids knowing each other. If Jim from Winnipeg is this young phenom guy at 14 years old, but there's one in BC and one in Alberta, make sure these guys meet each other, <laughs> get to know each other. They may be our next Olympic chance. It doesn't matter where they're from. I don't think the game's past that now. I don't think anybody cares what province people are from anymore. You just get the best teams you can together and you try to win. Curling Canada's never contacted you? No, I've never been invited into the coaching at Curl Canada, instructing, nothing. Nope, zero. Well, how about nope. that for a start, Warren? Okay, to get to, <laughs> to develop curling. Um, I, if I'm Curling Canada, Warren, I'm walking into the office today going, get Scotland on the phone, okay? Let's find out what they're doing. Do we know other programs around the world, Warren? Do you know of it that are you know in the forefront of, of great junior development programs? I'm not familiar with with any of the details. I, I think uh, when we talk to Phil later, he'll tell us a little bit about the USA one, and and it's uh, it's fairly advanced. Um, I'm pretty sure Switzerland is into the same type of thing, and probably Scotland. And Kevin might know uh, what's happening in Asia and in, in Japan and Korea. I, I'm I'm sure they must be doing similar types of things. Well, you've got Japan. You've got JD Lind, who's absolutely fantastic as an instructor coach running the program. Um, you've got in China Paya Lindholm who built that extremely strong Swedish program. That's who's running the program there. And then Peter Gallant, Brett Gallant's uh, dad, who uh, coached in South Korea, that's who is running uh, or coaching some of, or I'm not sure how many, I, 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 I want to make sure I'm right. So definitely coaching in South Korea. I'm not exactly sure to what degree and with if it's just with Unjun Kim or with all of the teams, I don't know the answer to that. But but these places and when it comes to Scotland, you're you're mentioning Scotland. Eve Muirhead was coached for many years by Glenn Howard, and you've got Wayne Madaw uh, involved in Sweden with Anna Hasselborg's team. So I you know I think that a lot of these nations around the world have grabbed onto some really high uh, Canadian talent, and and have really improved their programs that way. Okay, good stuff, boys. Uh, I love this quick email, Warren, that we got. Janice Ainsworth writes us, long-time curler, long-time fan, long-time club volunteer. Of course, I am watching the mixed doubles. Carrie sweeping every rock, hers and Gushu's. Brad, on the other hand, sits in the hack calling line. <laughs> Come on, man, she says. <laughs> Didn't Gushu make the deal, though, Warren? Didn't he say, okay, if I'm doing this, I ain't freaking sweeping. When we had him on last week, I think he was pretty clear that when he teamed up with Carrie, he made it clear to her that she was doing most of the sweeping because his bod was a little too beat up to be uh, out there leaning in the brush on every stone. So I think that was a pre-competition deal. Brad always gets all the, all. everybody's always, oh, I love that Brad Gushu. I love Brad Gushu. This is great to have somebody say, come on, Brad. <laughs> That's perfect. That's every curler's dream, you know. Yeah, I ain't sweeping. Okay. Uh, Tanner Nathan, uh, drops us an email. Hello, Warren, keeping this short, adding tie games to an event just to help scheduling, uh, is a terrible idea. Watching two and a half hour games just for it to end in a tie. Talk about boring. How does that not uh, come up in that discussion? We want to add excitement to the games. Letting them end in ties is the exact opposite of excitement. I'm enjoying the interviews and that's from Tanner. I, I think probably we didn't fully explain that whole concept of, uh, how to deal with ties. So what you would do is at the end of the game, if it was tied, uh, each side would get one point. You would then draw the button for 
a second point. So for a win with a draw to the button, you'd get two points. But for a regular win without going into any draw the button or anything else, you'd get three. So there would be a differentiation, much like the same thing the NHL does. So it would be tie, tie broken, or definite win. And uh, you would know who's who's won the game. Somebody would, would still win at the end of the game. Kevin, you've talked about great comebacks. I keep bugging you. I, I think you should come, Kevin. We talked about Phil Mickelson doing this. Uh, there's there's other great stories about great comebacks in the sport. Wayne Madaw, uh, maybe one of the biggest comebacks, Kevin. They had mentioned a little bit when we saw him uh, at the Briar about his accident, Kevin, but he had a terrible accident. Would have thrown him out of the game, Kevin, virtually? Well, yeah, and it's just, you know, he's healed well, obviously, and uh, he's playing pretty good golf, too. I uh, I was texting with uh, Wayne, Jesus, morning or last night, and he said he shot 70 his uh, uh, the day before. Gee whiz. So shoots under par. So he's just one of those kinds of athletes <laughs> that can play. But it's not really a comeback, I don't think, for Wayne. He just, uh, uh, you know, Glenn got hurt. Wayne went to the briar and ended up, you know, having to play. And, uh, you know, Wayne is just a brilliant curler and, uh, and, and almost carried the team all the way to the, to the finish line, uh, other than just, you know, his, uh, his, his body was starting to shut down a little bit at the end. It had went through a lot and he hadn't curled much in the last few years. So it was tough, but yeah, what a, what a huge, uh, event that the briar for, for Wayne Madaw and for curling in general, because everybody, everybody's cheering him on. We were, we were all enjoying watching him make all those crazy shots. Hey, I mean, he was a sentimental favorite. And if you think back, uh, when I first met Wayne and started coming around the briar, uh, he was kind of curling's bad boy. Uh, member, of course, flipping the bird, right? He became more famous for that, throwing his finger up than he did throwing a rock. The reason I bring it up is uh, we've lined up Wayne Madaw to come on the show next week. Uh, a lot of people have been asking for that. Uh, so we're super, super happy to finally get that done. And if you'd like to ask Wayne a question, uh, drop us an email and uh, we'll try to get it uh, on air and we'll try we'll try and ask Wayne that. Uh, that that'll be uh, next week that we're going to do this. So once again, you can email us insidecurling at gmail.com and we'd love to take your questions for Wayne Madaw coming on next week. Uh, so it's time to bring on our guest, Phil Drobnik. He is the director of the U.S. Mixed Doubles and Men's Curling Program. Phil, it's great to have you on. How did all that come about, Phil? And when did you make that decision that you were going to take on coaching? Yeah, I started back at coaching in 2006 when Chris Plies had uh, reached out to me and, and said their team needed some help and they were looking for a coach. They wanted someone that was um, younger and more in tune, tuned with the game and was asking if I'd be willing to work with them and try to help their, their new team to uh, win a national championship. And you know, I said yes. And uh, that was pretty much the start of my coaching career, my uh, I had a cousin that that curled uh, Matt Prushik, who curled with Chris Plies back then, and um, and then Anders Burson and Matt Hamilton. So it was uh, you know a pleasure to work with those guys. We ended up winning three national championships, uh, a world championship, and and a bronze medal at the world championships. So it was uh, a great three years, and I just really enjoyed what I did. And uh, I've always said the pinnacle of coaching is to be able to watch athletes. Uh, uh, reach their dreams. And um, I've got to do that a number of times. And uh, it's just a, such a great feeling 
to be able to see um, athletes that that dream about winning, you know, a national championship or a world championship or an Olympic gold medal. And as a coach, you sit there firsthand, um, being able to help them and give them all the information and the guidance that they they need to be able to get there. But then to be able to watch them um, live that dream, it's it's just a really cool feeling. Out of all your accomplishments, of course, uh, you were the coach of the United States men's team at both the 2010 Winter Olympics and the 2018 Winter Olympics. I don't know who won that 2010 thing, but anyway, who cares? I don't remember that one either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, for those of us who've been fans of curling for such a long time and now we're, you know, the, the coaches are ever-present, sitting at the end of the sheet, uh, watching the games, coming onto the ice when, when decisions have to be made. What do you do off the ice with the coaching? Yeah, there's a number of things, uh, you know, all from, you know, working with teams to get their, their systems set up, uh, be, whether it be technically, tactically, whether it be team dynamics, uh, team systems that they're following through. You know, there's so much important work that teams do with their coaches prior to events and making sure that these teams are prepared physically, mentally, um, you know, making sure that their teams are working with the the team dietitian, making sure that they're, you know, you're, you're really the, the, the person that makes sure that they're, they're guiding through with their sports psychologist. They're working with their, their uh, strength trainer. So, um, there's a lot of roles that, a that a coach needs to be following through with nowadays and it's busy. And, uh, like I said, um, we've gone through a lot of changes within our system in the U S and now fortunately we've got a lot of great support staff in place that can help make the coaches jobs easier. Um, back when I started in, in 2006, and as Kevin probably knows, you know, coaching wasn't that prevalent. So you were really doing, I was doing every, all that, trying to do all those different things on my own and um, trying to navigate through it. Now there's, there's a lot more support for coaches and, um, you know, people with expertise in certain areas that can help to guide you. So it's, uh, there's a lot of work to be done uh, pre-events and post-events and then Obviously, in events, there's there's things, you know, to make sure that everything flows as it should. And the athletes only really have to think about competing and, and playing when they're when they're at events. Let's talk a little bit about uh, mixed doubles, because that's been the, the topic of the day here for the last couple of weeks. You were in Scotland with uh, with your team and you guys had a bit of a struggle. Tough game on Sunday in qualifying against the Czech Republic for Tabitha and Joe. But at the same time, I guess a little confusing, the U.S. national mixed doubles were taking place, which I guess we need to clarify. One of the main reasons for running the U.S. Uh, mixed doubles nationals was to qualify some more teams for your trials. So you'd already qualified three from last year's uh, 2020 U.S. nationals, and I believe four more were qualified on Sunday. The uh, The team that won the event on Sunday, Chris Plies and Vicky Persinger, are, are now the 2021 champions, and they will join... Uh, the three qualifiers from last year, along with three other teams. And uh, you're going to have a qualifying, I believe, in October uh, or the fall to bring in, what, three more teams? So the total is going to be 10. Is that correct? Yeah, our Olympic trials will be 10 teams. And uh, we'll have a, we actually have a qualifying event that's going to be in August and one in September. And then our Olympic trials will be, the, the dates haven't been set, but it'll be October to, to beginning of November. So what's going to happen? Um, and of course, you guys just barely missed qualifying out of uh, Scotland. And so the U.S. has still got to qualify for the Olympics. And I'm assuming that event's going to be held, I'm hearing, in December. Is that what you're hearing? Yeah, we're hearing it's going to be held in December, uh, probably in the, the beginning parts of December. Um, my guess likelihood is it's going to be somewhere in Europe, but they haven't confirmed a, a location for it yet at this point. 
And I'm assuming that the winner of the uh, U.S. trials is a team that will represent the United States in that playoff? Yeah, we'll send our team that wins the Olympic trials, and you know they'll go there and battle it out and, and, and work to earn their Olympic spot. Just before I go over to Kevin, so how did you find that event in Scotland as far as uh, working in a bit of a bubble there and the same type of thing in a competition? Was it, uh, was it up to your expectations or were there any issues there that you felt from, from that week? No, it was, it was a great event, uh, well run. As everything through, through this COVID pandemic, things have been challenging, things have been different. And, um, you know, the, the staff there at Aberdeen, uh, Tom Brewster and, um, you know, the, the ice crew, did a fantastic job hosting us, and uh, as good as you can do with what we were we were asked of. So no complaints there. The ice was great. You know, it had a lot of swing to it. Uh, you know, speed was you know anywhere from fourteen to to you know fifteen on, on a given day. So hog to hog. So I mean, we were we were yeah hap- definitely happy with the event and the ice conditions and um, everything that everyone did to to put together to to host the event. I want to back, walk back in time because, uh, of course, you were part of the uh, the biggest win in U.S. curling history in, in Pyeongchang. But the start of that week in Pyeongchang, now remember I was working with NBC, so I was paying close attention to your team. It didn't go well at the start. We had John Schuster on the show here and, and listened to his side of things, but I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear it from behind the coach's eyes. I'm not sure if you guys were, what was it, one and three, one and four, like backs against the wall, pretty much had to win out. And then all of a sudden, the, the tides turned. I'd like to hear it from the coach's perspective. Yeah, we were two and four. Um, and, you know, I think the, the interesting part about that time of the week was, you know, we were basically eliminated from the competition, although, um, you know, I, I, by, by all media sources and by everyone else, you know, two and four, they're out of the competition. Not, nobody's talking about us, right? You know, we put a lot of processes in place in the 2018 games, as it was mentioned, I, I coached in the 2010 games, and I wasn't prepared to coach in Olympics at that point. I was young, I was inexperienced, and didn't have a lot of the the, the skill set or tools to be able to help a team at that point. Fortunately, in the in the 2018 um, games, we had we had a great support staff. We had you know Carly Anderson as our sports psychologist. We had um, you know myself. We had you know Derek Brown and. Um, we had been through processes like this. We had been through Olympics. So one thing we did is we put in team systems that would, uh, you know, no, no matter what happened, we followed through with our team systems. You know, have we did our pre-games meetings the same way every day. We did our post-game meetings the same way, uh, no matter if it was a, one, a win or a loss. And the most important thing that this team did was they trusted each other. They knew that they deserved to be there they knew that they deserved an opportunity to win a medal um they had won a bronze medal in the 26 world championships 2016 world championships in 2017 they had finished fourth so they knew that they were good enough to be there if they could put things together that we were good enough to get ourselves on the medal stand and it was a matter of them believing in themselves this team never gave up on each other when they were sitting at two and four we sat in the post-game meeting after that that loss to Norway, and we knew we had a fighting chance. We knew that we needed to believe in our processes, believe in what we were doing, and those guys, all you know, all three of them, you know, stood up for John. They stood on, you know, had John's back, and um, you know, he was the the guy that got us there, and they believed in him from the coaching staff to the trainers to our sports psychologists. You know, I think it was an empowering moment of. 
we've got you. You're our guy. Get us to where we need to go. And, um, you know, John did what he needed to do to get himself in the right spot mentally. We came out. We knew we had to play Canada in that next game. We were an underdog, obviously, playing Canada and sitting at two and four. And we had nothing to lose. And I think it actually was a fortunate spot for us because we were playing a team that on paper in Olympic history we had never beaten. Even though the pressure was probably really high, it was really off them because there were no expectations. Everyone thought they were out. So we told them to go out and play the game like they and, and have some fun with it. And, you know, don't let anybody else tell you when your tournament is done. Uh, those are the specific things that, you know, we, we kind of started to, to build on is, you know, we'll be done when we decide we're done. And, you know, let's let that be when we can make ourselves to play on, on Saturday. And um, these guys just came out as a different team and they played relaxed. Beating Canada, you know, didn't turn us into a, a contender yet. We still had two huge games to go playing uh, Switzerland and playing Scotland. But we knew that our fate was if we beat them, we dropped them down to the same record as us and we would all be five and four and we'd have the head to head to move above them and they would have to now play in a play in a tiebreaker. So it just uh, everything fell into place. These guys started to play um, relaxed and uh, the, the pressure wasn't there. And um, that was a huge part uh, of our success is trusting the process. Well, it was incredible. Phil, the, one of the concerns always here uh, that the boys have pointed out is, um, you know, about getting young people involved. It seems all our champions here in, in Canada are not the young kids. Uh, what's it like there? Yeah, we're, you know, we've got some work to do just like every other country. We've done a great job in the last year of developing a U25 program. We found a gap, you know, as I think you guys did up in Canada and some other countries. But we have these curlers that these athletes that come out of juniors and there's no place for them to go because all of a sudden, you know, on the men's side, you know, you look at they've got to go and compete against a John Schuster or a Rich Ruin, and it's tough to do that. So we needed to, to create a program that would help to develop athletes from 21 to 25. So we did that last year. We implemented the, the a U25 program, and we've got, uh, we're continuing to develop that. But that is, you know, one of our first steps. We have our, uh, we have a very strong junior program that we have, you know, that we've kind of revamped and um, adjusted the way we look at things and the way we do things. And one of the most important pieces that we've also set up uh, is a developmental pool of athletes. So we had a program this year, which was, I think there was anywhere from 30 to 50 uh, kids that were under 18 that would, uh, were a part of this program that um, 1998 Olympian Mike Pepelinski ran most of these athletes didn't have ice even and they stayed in tune for the entire winter you know they would get on once a month he'd do a seminar with them um, he'd send them out challenges um, things that they could do off ice and then the ones that did have ice um, you know they could you know, go to the rink tape their delivery send it to him get some analysis so um, it was for the first year of the program being in the middle of a pandemic uh, mike did a fantastic job with it it's going to be something that we can grow on. We're going to look at having camps for these for these athletes. So um, we see how important it is to be growing the game uh, at the youth level. And I think these two new programs that we've started, I think, are you know a step in the right direction. When I was looking at the men's and women's nationals that are starting right away here, 
On the men's side, you've got some, uh, I'm, I'm going to say uh, older teams like our friends, of course, uh, Todd Burr and, and Persinger and uh, of course, Rich Runin and, uh, but you've got the young teams, Corey, of course, Dropkin, excellent team out of Chaska, Scott Dunham out of Philadelphia, of course, Riley Fenson out of Chaska and Luke Violet out of Chaska. So those are, those are good young, young teams. And on the women's side, it's all youth, just about. You know, be uh, Madison Bear, of course, excellent. Corey Christensen, fantastic. Uh, McMacken, Rhyme, um, and Jamie Sinclair's you know, not old by any means, but she's kind of the elder statesman now on the on the women's side. I guess I just I would like to hear your thoughts on this uh, mass amount of of young players, especially on the women's side, because that's really exciting to see. It really is, and obviously. We, we go through those changes and we've, we've lost a number of um, top female athletes over the last, uh, you know, eight years to retirement. And um, to see these, these young female athletes, you know, wanting to get better, you know, wanting to, to put the time in. Um, as you guys know, the game has changed a lot in the last 10 years and it's a full-time commitment. You know, a lot of times these athletes are putting school on hold. They're putting life on hold. They're putting... Um, all these, they're moving to uh, the Twin Cities and, you know, all in in hopes and dreams to win a national championship and to represent their country at a world championships and ultimately get on a, get on a medal stand. So it's, it's great to see these youth team, youth, youthful teams. We saw it in the mixed doubles nationals. If you looked at the, at the final four, you know, we had uh, Jenna Brzezinski and, and Ben Richardson, you know, that ended up qualifying for the trials. We had Madison Bear. Andrew Sapera, who are our U25 mixed doubles uh, team that ended up losing the final uh, um, to a veteran team of, of Chris Blyes and Vicky Persinger. So our young athletes are, are showing up to play. Luke Violet teamed up with a, a veteran in Eileen um, Geving. So uh, it's, it's, it's fun to see. It's fun to see the, these young teams put in the work and actually see it pay off for them because then they can see that the things that they're doing, the, you know, going to the gym, you know, we're fortunate to, to have that partnership with the Twin Cities Orthopedics. Our athletes train right there at the training house in, in Egan. And, um, you know, Mike Glenshin does a great job working with our athletes. They have like six training sessions a, a day that different athletes come to. And the interesting part about it is, Kev, you, you probably have experience with it. These younger athletes now are all training together. They might be on opposing teams or they might end up playing each other for a junior national championship. But we have this unique thing going on where they're all now, a lot of them are in the Twin Cities area. They live together, but yet they're competing against each other. So it's kind of a something that we, I don't know that, that we, we certainly haven't seen something like that in the U.S. It's going to be interesting to see how to continue to watch this play out and to see how this can, can help our game. Well, doesn't that kind of show your, uh, your system now, because you've got so many young players and they realize that maybe they're not together right now, but being so young, there's a really good chance in a couple of years, they could be teamed up together. Like it's more of a, a, a team USA concept than, you know, like a team, uh, Dropkin versus team Fenson. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's not like that now. It seems to me anyways, um, a whole group of young players just trying to get really, really good. And by banging their own heads together, playing against each other, no problem. Because in the end, a lot of the top ones that get to the cream rises to the top, they end up being on the same team anyways. Yeah. Uh, well, you're 100% correct. That's, that's the whole culture of, of our program that we want to be developing as a team USA model. Like, 
Let's get better together. Let's push each other. Let's uh, do everything we can to make each other better. We see that in particular, obviously, you know, me working with our men's program, you know, Rich Ruinen and, and John Schuster and Corey Dropkin are all good friends, right? And they'll even do the, the razzing on social media of each other. And, you know, they're pushing John Schuster to make sure he's getting better because as you can see in the world rankings, and obviously we didn't have much of a season, but last year, you know, Corey Dropkin and, and Rich Ruinen were 14 and 15 in the, in the, in the order of merit. And um, they were ahead of John Schuster. So they're pushing at him. They're on his heels. And by having three teams like that pushing each other, it only makes you better. Let's talk about uh, how those teams are put together, Phil. And I think you, you do things a little different than probably in Canada. So your high performance committee, along with yourself and the other coaches, you work with those teams and sort of like who's going to play with whom, do you not? Yeah, we help to guide the process. And, um, you know, we don't have um, the depth, obviously. You guys got uh, a million or two million curlers up there. And so, you know, we help to work with them to figure out, you know, who's a good fit, who's best situated together. You know, if a team has an opening, who's who's the best person to, to fill that role? And, you know, myself in particular, we'll work with the team coach, we'll work with our sports psychologist to figure out, you know, let's make sure we get the right person in there. Because um, as you guys know, it's not always about the person that makes the most shots. Um, you also have to have a person that can fit in there and be a role player and, and fit the team chemistry. And you can have the four best shooters on a team and they may not have success on the world stage because they don't have that same team chemistry and the same team systems that can allow them to be successful. That's great. It doesn't matter how you guys do it. I think that's uh, one of the problems that we have in Canada. It's still being left to chance. And I think not enough calculation of who might fit best with who and which combination may work the best and experimenting a bit to find those things out. Anyway, we talked about the U.S. mixed doubles, which just finished. And at this moment, the U.S. men's and women's nationals are taking place. And again, this is primarily determined teams for your Olympic trials. And uh, just uh, let me go through this and correct me if I'm wrong. But your trials are going to be six men's and six women's teams held in Omaha, I believe, in November. Two teams are already qualified, one men's, one women's, Schuster and uh, Peterson from being the 2020 champions. And other this week, I believe you're going to qualify two more teams, and then there's going to be a playoff in the fall, I believe, to determine three others. Is that all correct? Yes, that's correct. And this week, I'm looking at who's playing here. I think uh, from my point of view on the women's side, uh, I think Jamie Sinclair, uh, Corey Christensen would be the, the two best picks. And I would think on the men's side, probably Ruinen and Dropkin. Uh, would you stick your neck out to uh, say yay or nay on that? <laughs> um, uh, what I would say is on the women's side, we have a couple of, um, as Kevin talked about, there's some youth and we have, uh, you know, Madison Bears team has been working really hard and, and um you know, we, we're fortunate to have a Delaney Strauss, who's our, our junior, our current junior national champion and who's done a lot of work. So, you know, the, I think that um, the teams that you listed are the, the highest ranked on the, on the order of merit. And, um, you know, they're going to be pushed on the women's side uh, by those young teams. And obviously, you know, on the men's side, there's uh, Greg Persinger has been around for a while. And, uh, you know, he's got Craig Brown on his team, Alex Leichter. Uh, they're a great team. And, and, and the Dunham team is is a real solid team put together. And then you've got the young guys, obviously, of with Luke Violet, Riley Fenson, that are going to be pushing them. So I think it's going to be a great, great week. And, uh, 
you know, a lot of great action. I think these teams, whoever's going to win is going to need to bring their, their A game and, um, you know, be able to put together uh, some good games and, you know, be prepared to win at the end of the week. I think of all those teams, the, the one that I would look at with the greatest potential and ready to break out of her shell is Corey Christensen. I think she's got the potential to be a, a great player. Um, do you agree on that one? Yeah, I've had, a, I've had an opportunity to actually work with Corey uh, in the past, Corey and Sarah and Taylor and Vicky, and, um, you know, those, those ladies are, are great players. They, um, you know, they've, they've been right there knocking at the door. Um, they've been close. Uh, you know, Vicky obviously had a breakthrough last weekend winning the, winning the mixed doubles nationals. She's been right there when she used to play with Jamie Sinclair. So, you know, Vicky's the, the veteran on the team. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that, those, those ladies have done a lot of work and, um, you know, I'm excited to see, to see them play this week. And, you know, as well as Jamie, she's got a slightly new team and, um, you know, her and Monica Walker are definitely veterans and they've got a, got a new young front end. It's going to be exciting to see what, uh, normally, uh, as we've talked about, and you guys have talked about, you know, going into world championships, teams have played, you know, a hundred some games. Um, as it, you know, it's generally the same prior going into national championships as our national championships are usually held in February. They've played a hundred games to prepare. And, you know, in this case, they, they've maybe played, uh, you know, 10 to 15 scrimmage games. So, um, anything certainly can happen. Something that probably not too many people have noted, but I think maybe the first time ever in both the men's and women's worlds this year, the United States placed ahead of Canada. That's probably a first, is it not? Yeah, I would say, um, yeah, we certainly noticed. Um, I'll bet you did. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was a great, uh, you know, great to see our teams uh, at the world championships playing well. And, you know, we're continuing to get better and, you know, Tab's team, you know, bringing home a bronze medal, uh, was fantastic. You know, I would have loved to seen, uh, you know, how the week would have finished out with John's team had the, had the controversy not, not gone on and the, and the issues that went with the world championships, but it is what it is. And, you know, we learn from it and we make ourselves better from that. And, uh, you know, I was proud of the way those guys handled the situation and, um, you know, proud that they were able to come out and, and play in a, in a quarterfinal game and, you know, have most of the world know that there, was, there was, wasn't much going on and, you know, they ended up losing on the last shot. But um, they were really in a great flow and I would have loved to, to have that game on Saturday morning when it was scheduled to have it and uh, see what kind of run um, um, John would have made. I, I believe he's poised to win a world championship and, um, you know, when he, when, he, when he can get that opportunity. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping he gets that uh, here sometime in the near future. Right on, Phil. Keep up the passion, man. Uh, great stuff. Curling needs more guys like you. Uh, congratulations on uh, uh, your career so far, uh, you know, in the, in the coaching ranks. And obviously there's going to be bigger and better things to come for uh, the States in, when it comes to curling, for sure. Take it easy, Phil. Thanks again for coming on. Hey, thanks a lot, Phil. Thanks, Phil. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Well, Kev, uh, what do you like when you hear Phil talk about the U.S. program? I like the growth. I like how organized they are. I like the way they, they're looking at, at growing the game. Uh, the momentum in the U.S. is just really strong right now with opening up new clubs and there's not much I don't like right now in what I see coming out of our Southern friends. 
Uh, Warren, you've always said the U.S. program, the, well, one of the things that you do like is it doesn't have the stigma down in the U.S. of, of an old man's sport, uh, that it's attracting young kids, Warren. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Well, I worked with the USACA for uh, three years in sort of an advisor capacity with their events. And my experience was that younger people with the sport of curling in the United States overall are, are very curious about the sport, and they find it intriguing. And I can even remember last year, we're at the University of Eastern Washington in Spokane, and we're on the campus. And some of these young people would come down, they just, they wanted to touch the ice, they wanted to touch the rock, because they were fascinated by the whole thing. And so there's a, there's a little different uh, attitude about the sport of curling in the United States than I think there is in Canada. Canada, today, we, we, we dealt with the stigma for many, many years of it being kind of the old man's game, and they party a lot and so on. And while we have overcome a lot of that, it still is there in the background, but that type of thing is not uh, prevalent in the United States at all. And it's a, it's a more a factor of curiosity, excited to want to try it, and in many cases, play it. Come on, Warren. You're not talking about getting rid of the partying side of it, are you, for curling? Curlers are the best partiers in the world, man. <laughs> That's why I fell in love with the game, Kev. <laughs> That's why you had a job. There wouldn't have been a briar patch. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh, let's get out of here, you guys, okay? Inside Curling, we're reaching out to curling clubs all over the world, inviting you to contact us and and ask me again about the partying at Curling, okay? We'd love to sit down with you guys for an hour. We'll do it by Zoom. Uh, Please keep in mind it's on a limited basis that we're doing this, but if you'd like us to set that up, we've done over eight or nine of these now, and uh, the clubs love it, and Kevin and Warren, I've, I've I've sat through them, and they're fantastic, and they take all comers and all questions. So uh, let's thank Rod Paulson and his company, In-House Strategies out of Winnipeg, uh, for all the great work on social media and the marketing, along with uh, our team at Sportsnet. Uh, Our producer is Warren Hanson. I know that guy. Amal is the uh, producer of the show. Uh, Our social media is done by Jonathan Brazo, and our editing is done by Andrew Holland. So... Until next week, boys, uh, Kev, let's hit the golf course here finally. Warren, you get out there too, and we'll talk about our games coming up next week. You've been listening to another episode of Inside Curling. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim.